mouth of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Shereza and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past seventy years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations. They were the strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one travelled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, my name is Andy, I teach Old Testament, and it's my great pleasure to be opening Zechariah chapter 7 with you this morning. I want to begin just by taking you uh, to a train journey that I went on. Uh, it's a train journey, uh, it doesn't matter where it was from or to, it's not important. Um, sitting there with a friend, just longest journey, and there was this guy uh, in a suit, and there was a kid listening to loud music, uh, not on his headphones, on speakerphone, which on a long train journey is... Look, let's just say the mood of the carriage was not in favour of this particular teenager. And so people were getting more and more annoyed. An old lady got up and said, you're a very rude young man, and walked out to the next carriage, which had everyone kind of nodding in uh, approval at her message. I mean, then something happened which sort of changed the, changed the mood of the people watching. A guy in a business suit with the kind of the age or whatever the paper was um, stood up, uh, walked over to him, and punched him and started kind of hitting this child, really. It was kind of a young teenager, maybe 13 or 14, and tried to force him to turn off his music. And at that point, the, the carriage was suddenly a lot more sympathetic towards Mr. Loud Music on the speakerphone. Um, he's just, I'm sorry, you just don't hit a child. Um, uh, guy jumped up and kind of wrestled him away from, from hurting the child any further. Um, I don't know what happened to the music. It probably just uh, disappeared out of the focus. And someone pushed that button, which I've never seen pushed before. You know, the, the help, something's happening, we don't know what to do uh, button. Um, and so along came the, the train guards at the next um, station, some um, officers of the law came to sort out the situation and they took one look at the situation and they saw um, a, a 13-year-old kid they saw a bystander and they saw a man in a suit with the, uh, the business section of the paper. And so, of course, they promptly arrested the kid and the bystander and left the man with the newspaper to continue his journey. 
And everyone's just sort of like, I tried to like, excuse me, <laughs> I'll give you some background. It was no point arguing. Because when they looked at the exterior of the situation, when they looked at this man kind of properly dressed for work, you know, business section in hand, they saw a picture which I knew and everyone else in the carriage knew did not match the reality, but that's what happened. And so as they kind of pulled away, and this poor bystander who did nothing, nothing wrong at all, just looked a little bit shabby, uh, I, I just I stared at the guy, and he was facing me, so it was kind of one of those awkward eye contact moments, which... And I thought, you, you know what? We have a word for you. You are the definition of a hypocrite. Because what you're presenting on the outside... And what we all know is on the inside, this kind of rage, don't match. Now, look, no one likes a hypocrite, not a hypocrite on a train, but particularly a religious hypocrite. Someone who's meant to be a person of God, and yet there's something else going on the inside. Now, that is another story, and that's the focus of Zechariah chapter 7. Today, we've been having... um, a series of crazy visions from Zechariah. But the visions are over. We're moving now in chapter 7 into um, something a little bit more straightforward. We've had the flying scrolls. We've had enough of the chariots. We've had enough of the really confusing furniture. Um, we now have a straight-ahead prophetic message. And you notice that the time has jumped forward. Uh, so we started off, if you flick back to chapter 1, we're in, I think, the second year. Is that right? Second year of Darius. Now chapter 7, we're in the fourth year of Darius. Two years have passed, and the temple is kind of halfway complete. And yet, this is precisely the point that some people from Bethel arrive with a question. And we're going to look at this, their question and the answer in three parts, as always. Part one to do with Zechariah, part two to do with Jesus, and part three to do with us. I've just given away my sermon structure for pretty much every talk, so you can, um, you can steal that. I didn't come up with it. Part one, in which we realize that the inside has to match the outside, or the outside has to match the inside. Part one. Uh, Just a reminder, Zechariah is preaching in the aftermath of the exile. Uh, The earlier prophets had warned about 70 years of exile if the people of Judah didn't change their way. They didn't change their way. And so in the fifth month of 586 or 587 BC, what happens? Well, exactly as they promised. God leaves the building, Uh, leaving Jerusalem, the temple, uh, open for destruction. Jerusalem falls, and then the exile begins. Ever since that happened, people have been fasting on the fifth month, because that's the month in which the temple was destroyed. A, A time of deep national sorrow. Look what we did. God, will you please have mercy on us? So they're fasting and mourning on the fifth month ever since that happened, the last almost 70 years, as a sign of national mourning, waiting, waiting, for their uh, things to be turned around. But then, kind of towards the end of the exile, the the temple is half rebuilt. The question arrives, do we have to keep on fasting? Right? Can we stop now? And so some people from the north come and ask that question. Verse 2, the people of Bethel, which is about 20 kilometers north, uh, had sent Shariza and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests in the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast on the fifth month as I've been doing so many years? Now, you might think this is a reasonable question, but it's not. Because firstly, their sorrow and their longing for a rebuilt temple didn't extend to actually helping with the temple. Right? They've just shown up as the temple's almost complete. Remember, they're 20 kilometers away. They could have helped. So it's not like their kind of outward religiosity has matched a deep desire for the temple to be restored. And secondly, 
their mourning and their fasting has not been accompanied by the type of lifestyle which says mourning and fasting for our sins which led to the exile. The outside and the inside don't match. And so Zechariah answers their question with a series of questions. I've noticed in the Bible that if you ask a question of God and you get a question in response, things are going to go badly for you. Verse 4, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? In other words, they were fasting because it's in the calendar. It's just what they do. It's their religious observance. It's not because their hearts were breaking over sin. It's not because they were truly looking for the restoration of the temple. It's just the thing that they did. They weren't humbly begging God for a return of his glory. They were like hypocritical avocados. I hate hypocritical avocados. You go to the supermarket (laughs) and you select, try not to too obviously squeeze them all because that's a bit rude. You select an avocado which looks to all appearances perfectly shaped, perfectly formed, no blemishes, the right mix of kind of ripeness but not going to get too bruised on the way home. You select this avocado and you bring it home saying, yes, this avocado is going to make my smashed avocado day. And then you open it. You've had this experience, this is not just me, surely. You open it and, and you look inside and it's brown and it's bruised and it's fit for nothing except to be thrown in the fire. Woe to you, hypocritical avocado. That's, that's what Zechariah is saying to these people. Woe to you, hypocritical, hypocritical avocados. Because what's on the outside is not matching what's in the inside. They're hypocritical because their religion is not backed up by the heart. And the reason why Zechariah knows this is because he's been watching. He knows this because he's been watching what's been going on. Their lives don't reflect their religion. Right? The, the, the temple and the Torah are a package deal, right? Worship of God and a lifestyle of obedience go together. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, verse 9. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. You want to be a Yahweh worshipper? You've got to do these things as well. Uh, this, by the way, uh, helps to resolve for us an old and pointless debate about whether it's more important to preach the gospel or to love the poor. I just need to look at what kind of God are we serving here? Love of God is always accompanied by love for two things, love for justice and love for personal godliness. Always goes together, always have. That's why it's this, I don't know, maybe, maybe it doesn't happen down here in Melbourne, but certainly where I was from in Sydney, there was this stupid debate about whether the church should be more on about evangelism or social justice, which to me is a little bit like asking as I turn up to preach, is it more important that I remember to put pants on or put a shirt on? <laughs> now, if you pushed me on it... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, if you push me on it, yes. <laughs> But it's not the desirable outcome, all right? The question has to be asked, why on earth am I choosing, right? Why why can't I have both? What kind of weird 
scenario has led me to this point that I think that they're mutually exclusive options. I, I remember talking to someone who was talking about their church, and they were like, oh, yeah, our church isn't doing uh, social justice anymore because we've got to focus on evangelism. I thought, well, that's fantastic. In fact, I reckon you could do better than that. I reckon you should quit teaching on sexual purity to save all this time that could be spent evangelizing people. Isn't that a great idea? Wouldn't that be fantastic if you evangelized all these people and then forgot to tell them what it meant to be a Christian? All right, the, the, the love for the poor and the love for God, they're not two competing missions. All right? Go and baptize the nations for sure, but don't forget to teach them what that means. Don't forget to go teach them what it means to love God. And love of God and love of neighbor always go together. And that's because God and injustice, they don't share a roof. That's what the whole point of the exile was. God and injustice do not share a roof. Uh, that said, of course, you know, disclaimers, you don't want to only care for the poor and forget to, uh, about the gospel. There's plenty of churches who've done that. Let them, let them do that. We want to do both. One reason that Zechariah is particularly grumpy is because the message which he's reminding them of is not a new message. It's eerily familiar. And the message of Zechariah 7 is basically the same as Jeremiah 7. Right, before the exile, Jeremiah warned them. And he says that, uh, 7, Are these not the words the Lord proclaims through the earlier prophets, i.e. Jeremiah, when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? In other words, the exile, guys, it was too costly a lesson not to learn from. If the exile has taught us anything, it's that God and sin don't live together. One has to go. Grace is no safe space for hypocrisy. It has to go. And that really, friends, should make us feel quite uncomfortable. At least it makes me feel uncomfortable. A friend of mine posted some ABS statistics the other day saying that the average Australian, and this, can I say, the, the stats for Christians are not much different. The average Australian spends 14 times as much money on takeaway as on charity. Like 14 times as much. Like a couple of hundred dollars to charity, a couple of thousand to restaurants and charity. And he posted this. I don't endorse necessarily this theology or eschatology. We're all going to hell. Hashtag Lord have mercy. Which thankfully brings us to part two, which I've entitled, Batteries Are Included. Part two, batteries are included. In the Old Testament, it teaches us that humans don't change. All right, we're not better than them. Humans don't change. So what makes us think we're going to do any different? If God and sin cannot share the same roof, is it that Jesus lowered God's standards so that we could all kind of scrape by? No, I refer you to the Sermon on the Mount. So why are we confident to share a roof with this holy God? Let's not forget that we are the temple of God, like the church, the people, the people of God, the temple of God, God dwelling by His Spirit. That sounds dangerous. If God is as holy as we know He is. Thankfully, batteries are included in the new covenant. I think uh, the death penalty is a terrible thing, except in one case, and that is makers of toys who do not include the batteries in them around Christmas time. Uh, I think it's just natural law that that should be the death penalty. right there. Because nothing worse is it. You give your nephew or niece a toy and it's Christmas day and they open it and the batteries aren't in it and nowhere's open and suddenly a beautiful gift has become 
weeping and gnashing of teeth on Christmas morning, right? Death penalty is the only kind of way of, of just deterring that. It's a horrible thing to be given a gift and not have the batteries included. Thankfully, the Christian life has the batteries included. Right? Where the new covenant has batteries included. Three things that we have in Jesus which help us to um, deal with this problem of hypocrisy. Firstly, we have Jesus and his life. Jesus and his life. Do you know Jesus fulfills the law? He lives the life in that old, old preacher's phrase. He not only died the death for us, but he lived the life we couldn't live. I think that's important. The life Jesus lived is not just kind of him getting his credentials up so he could die for us. It is for us. It is on our behalf. When Jesus fasted in the desert for 40 days in sincere fasting, he fasted for us. When he obeyed his father, he obeyed for us. And when he offered himself, he gave true worship on our behalf. Secondly, we have Jesus and his death. Through, who, uh, through which we have the forgiveness for our failures. It's a wonderful thing to know that you are accepted and forgiven despite through your failures. We offer the kind of forgiveness that the temple system could not provide. Paul explains in Acts chapter 13, through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And thirdly, we have Jesus' spirit, that other advocate from John 14 who is able to help us and be with us together. Jesus' Spirit gives us this new life. He makes us adopted children, confident in that adoption, reminding us of everything Jesus taught, opening our eyes to receive the, 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 the truth, transforming our faculties, changing our faulty minds, our crooked desires reoriented, putting sin to death. This process is by grace as much as the start of it was. We began by grace, we end by grace. We are saved by grace, we are sanctified by grace. And we never, friends, graduate from the gospel. And that brings us to part three, which I'm going to call a hypocritical pastor because there's lots of them. And I'm one of them. Part three, the hypocritical pastor. Now, many of us will be or are professional Christians. And that is the most dangerous occupation in the world. To be paid to turn up and preach the gospel. This is dangerous stuff, friends. Dangerous for others and dangerous for ourselves. Because the damage that you can do as a leader in the church, and even those of us who are not paid to do this, most of you will or should be leading at some level in the future if you aren't already. The danger that we can do. We need to hear both the message of warning and the the message of grace in this passage. I don't want to skip over the message of warning. There is nothing like the danger of hypocrisy. Uh, Many in our city of Melbourne have given up on church, not because they don't believe in God. That's the really interesting thing about a lot of the studies, the large-scale studies on people's spiritual beliefs. They still believe in God, they just don't believe in us. It's the persistent failure of Christian leaders which has turned them away from hearing the gospel. In one recent study, Americans under 30 are the least likely demographic to attend church ever. And the two reasons, you know the two reasons they cite? I'm sure this applies here. Hypocrisy and the failure of leaders. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this because you've probably already experienced this. You've probably already suffered under the hypocrisy of leaders. And living under grace, friends, doesn't make this okay. It doesn't 
make it okay. But we need to also hear the message of grace here too. Because it's actually this message of grace that is what helps us battle hypocrisy. We need to start and end with this same gospel. Think about why are we hypocritical? Why am, why am I hypocritical? I'll start with myself. Right? Why, why do I want to present a different outward exterior to my congregation than what's going on inside? Well, it's primarily, I think, because I've forgotten the gospel and I've started believing a message of fear. Fear of what people think about me. Because I'm the professional, I'm the, the strong one, I'm the one that has to have it all together, that people look to, and so I can't possibly be struggling with exactly the same things that every other human that's ever lived is. And that's really dangerous. That is so dangerous for you not to be able to be real with someone. I'm not saying with everybody. But to be honest about who you are with close friends, Christian peers, spouses, friends, your boss. They once did a survey of um, who ministers would share deep struggles with. And they asked, would you share it with your bishop? (laughs) Hell no. (laughs) Well, who would you? Right? If you don't have an answer to that question, I think, I think we're in danger. I remember, um, I never, I, 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 so much respect for this, this guy, a friend, uh, we were at Bible college, and he told a few of us in confidence that he'd been struggling with attraction to someone he shouldn't have been attracted to. And it had sort of because, become a thing in his mind because he was so, like, trying to not be attracted to this person that it just every time he saw them, it became an issue until he just did the most courageous thing and he told some trusted friends, some Christian brothers. And you know what happened? Nothing. No, nothing, nothing happened. There's no sin. There was no... In fact, it just became like a non-issue at that point. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think we need a Billy Graham rule. I just think we need people to be more like that. That's personal opinion, not reflecting the views of Ridley College. <laughs> Why don't leaders reach out for help? Because I really wish they would. Before the, the porn addiction destroys them privately, before the, the affair starts out, before the sincere questions of the faith become soul-destroying doubts and lead them to preach a message they don't believe. Why, why can't we reach out earlier? And it's, I think, because we've forgotten the message of grace. And we think that we need to be not saved by grace, but saved by something else. Friends, don't be an avocado. Don't be a hypocritical avocado. But seize and continue in this message of grace because it's just too important. But we are not chosen for this job, this ministry, this leadership because we're better than other people. Just ask the Apostle Paul. What was he doing when he was chosen? Not being awesome. <laughs> now we are chosen despite our failings to show all the more clearly the grace of God. And that is the the gospel message of grace which continues us and I pray will keep us going too. Shall I pray and then we're going to sing? Almighty God, you have chosen us and you have given us a calling to be Christians, to be people dependent daily on your grace, to be people empowered by your spirit to seek to forgive and to seek the forgiveness of others 
to speak to be real and true about uh, who we are before you and to show people that even, even failures like all of us can find adoption, can find eternal life, can find hope in Jesus. And so I pray we'd never forget that. I pray that uh, as we take on more and more, that we would keep coming back to this message of grace, that we would not be hypocrites, but we would be people dependent on your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're good.